As we open up our Bibles today, we're Matthew chapter number 16. Matthew chapter number 16. How many of you remember the year 1999? 1999. All right. Many of us, uh, but not all of us. How many of you, 1999, that sounds like something a lifetime ago you've never heard of that, or you've heard of it, but you have no idea what happened in 1999. Anyone? 1999, no memories whatsoever. Um, some adults have no memories of 1999. I just want to, I'm just kind of wondering what you were doing that year. Um, that the whole thing just disappeared. Um, I was young, but I remember it very clearly. Um, because 1999, there was one headline that was uh, dominating the news cycle. Y2K. Y2K. How many of you, when the words Y2K come out, you get a little bit of, um, I don't know if anxiety is the right word, um, but just maybe your eyes roll a little bit now. Um, Y2K, um, for those who aren't familiar and for those who need a refresher, if, it, if you can believe this, Y2K was nearly 23 years ago. Um, so anyone feeling old yet? Okay. All right. Um, What's amazing is as all of this, the news was just enamored, the media was enamored with the idea of Y2K. And the theory was this, that computers, the way that they checked um, dates, they, uh, many systems would only use the last two digits. And so 99, the computer knew to interpret as 1999, but somehow the, in, these engineers, certain engineers believed that in certain systems, that when 99 rolled over to 00, that the computer would not be able to process or that it would affect and so that they would revert back to 1900 instead of the year 2000. Um, and so it became a big um, frustration or a big um, scare that all of the computers were going to stop functioning when in fact the actual solution was make a four-digit date. And that's what most systems did uh, that actually may have been affected. And yet at the same time, what happened? People were running to the store and getting their milk and their bread and their eggs, and they were doing all of the things as if the world that we know was coming to an end. Um, Y2K today, we look back and we remember it as one of the most overblown disasters uh, that our nation has ever faced, right? We look back and we kind of say, Okay, yeah, it was scary then, but today we look at it and we say, okay, you know what? The right people knew what they were doing and they took care of the problem. Um, the fact is, is that when it comes to predicting the future, um, predicting the way certain things are going to happen, human beings are lousy at it, uh, right? Um, if you look at any space where someone is trying to tell you what's going to happen tomorrow, uh, we're obsessed with it. Uh, we watch the news, we watch sports, we watch all of these things. We want to hear the experts tell us what's going to take place. And then the experts are right about 50% of the time. <laughs> we could flip a coin and be as accurate as many experts are in actually predicting the future. They can tell us about the metrics and the studies and look back, but we have such a hard time just as a human race going in and seeing what's going to happen next. We're terrible at it. Um, we can look at just within the last couple of decades, political events that have taken place and they've surprised us. They've caught us off guard. If we had gone back 10 years ago and said, hey, the largest land war in Europe since World War II was going to erupt, we may have said, okay, yeah, that's probably a little bit overblown. And yet here we are. 
Uh, If we had gone back five years and said there was going to be a pandemic that was going to shut down the economy as we know it, that churches would not meet for months at a time, that stores would close and that restaurants would be unavailable except for carry out and that we would be wearing masks and having all the conversations that the last couple of years have led us into. If someone would have told you in the year 2018 that that was coming, you would have looked at them like they were crazy, wouldn't you? You said, ah, doomsday guy. Yeah, go have fun in the bunker in your backyard. And yet, here we are just a few years removed, and all of these things have taken place. But we've been obsessed as as humankind with predicting what's coming next for forever. Um, In fact, so many of you and so many of us, how many of you, one of the first things you do in the morning, maybe not the first thing, but before you leave the house, you pull out a phone or turn on the TV or whatever, and you look at the weather. We just pull it up. How many of you just, the weather channel is just on in your house all the time? Anyone? We have any of those? That's how my grandparents are. The weather channel is just, that's the default of their house. You walk in and there's the weather channel. We just want to know what's coming up. We want to know how we need to dress. And then amazingly, the meteorologists who have spent all this time learning the sciences behind these weather patterns, they're pretty accurate like 60% of the time. And so what we find is that we are pretty lousy at actually predicting what's coming next. Uh, And as we come to Matthew chapter 16, these Pharisees and Sadducees, these people, once again, they're coming to Jesus. And it's amazing how immediately Jesus looks at them and he points out their inability to actually discern these signs. Let's begin reading in verse number one of chapter 16. The Bible says the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And so this group immediately comes to Jesus And why are they coming to Jesus? With good motives? They're saying, hey, Jesus, uh, we really want to follow you, and we want to see the things that you're teaching us about. We want to understand this stuff. Is that what they say? They come, and to test him, they asked for a sign from heaven. And so what's their immediate response when they come to Jesus? Jesus, give us a sign. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. And I love Jesus' answer. Watch what he says in verse 2. He answered them, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. Maybe you've heard the, uh, the little idiom, uh, the little um, rhyme, red sky at night, sailor's delight, red sky in the morning. Sailor's warning. Same thing. This actually dates back to the first century, if not before that, okay? And so we see this is exactly, you think you know the signs of the times because you look and you see this red sky and you think, oh, good weather is ahead. Watch what he says in verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Okay, so what's happening here? Both of the um, sections of the scripture that we're going to be looking at today, uh, I'll be really honest with you, they're a little bit cryptic. Um, They're a little bit um, difficult to digest and to pull out. Application is application there, absolutely. 
Absolutely. But they're not the most clear. Um, this is not the parable of the sower goes out to sow. This isn't the parable of the prodigal son. And this isn't one of those uh, passages that we just look at and we're like, oh, yeah, that's my favorite passage in the scripture. Um, if either of these two are your favorite passage in the scripture, I'm not sure what to tell you. <laughs> these are a little bit difficult. These are a little bit, um, the way that these interactions come is a little bit complex. Uh, but what's happening here, I want to begin just with understanding who these people are, the Pharisees and Sadducees. You know what's funny here is that the Pharisees and Sadducees in this verse are grouped together as one unit. Okay, the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees and Sadducees hated each other. <laughs> they hated each other. These two did not get along. The Pharisees um, were popular among the common people. The people liked the Pharisees. They were like one of them. In fact, you may have had relatives that they went and they trained and they became a Pharisee. So we like the Pharisees, the people did. And these people were what we would call doctrinally conservative. Um, they believed the teachings of the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't try to twist them and wrestle with them. They believed what they said. Now, sometimes they went too far and they built laws and they built systems on top of that didn't flow with or didn't uh, actually understand the meaning of the passages, but they attempted to be true to the scriptures to their credit. And then we have the Sadducees. The Sadducees were primarily the priests among the people. They were a smaller segment, um, but the, Pharisees, the Sadducees were a little bit interesting because the Sadducees actually denied any bodily resurrection. So if we go back to the Old Testament, the Jews looked forward to the resurrection of the dead. They believed strongly that a resurrection would happen. We see that even in the New Testament, John chapter number 11, when Lazarus died, Jesus is speaking to Lazarus' sister, Martha, and Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And what does she say? She says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. And so she says, I know that eventually he will rise again, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. He's going to rise again like now. And then he says, Lazarus come forth and he does. And it's just this incredible story. John chapter number 11. But what we see is that the Sadducees actually reject any sort of a resurrection, um, spiritual beings, an afterlife. A lot of these things, the Sadducees are just like, hey, nope, this world is all we have. And so the Sadducees um, were those who took the scriptures and applied them in a very different way. They kind of wrestled with the scriptures. And so these two are very um, unlikely allies, we could call them because they are two different sides of the spectrum. And yet when Jesus enters into the scene, both of them say, well, we can't have this guy coming in and ruining everything for us. And so they bond themselves together. And now we see not just the Pharisees and these Sadducees, but in the, uh, in the original languages these are written in, when we see that definite article in one place, but not the other describing both groups, it's saying they're coming together. The Pharisees and Sadducees. Not two different entities coming at once, but one unit moving themselves against Christ. And so as these two come in, they immediately come in and they say, Jesus, show us a sign. Show us a sign. And what's Jesus' response? Jesus looks at them and says, hey, listen, guys, you pride yourself in being able to see what's coming next, but you're missing it. You pride yourself in being able to interpret the stuff coming ahead, but this one's just going over you. 
You're not catching what's actually taking place here. And so Jesus looks at them and says, you think you understand, you think you're interpreting this, but you are spiritually ignorant. Spiritually ignorant. Because as they come and they show us a sign, he says, show us a sign. And what does he say in verse four? He says, that's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. He's, he, he gives this illustration. He says, guys, you are better weathermen than biblical scholars. You, you better just stick to doing that because you have no idea what's actually happening within the scripture. See, um, as we look at this, I want you to understand today the nature of the things that are happening inside the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I want you to understand how we ought to respond to Christ instead of the way that they do. Today's one of those days that um, we're seeing from a bad example how we ought to behave. Sometimes in the scripture, we see these praiseworthy things that take place, and we see this person is elevated, and we ought to model the faith of so-and-so. Today's one of those days where it's kind of the opposite. We learn what not to do. And so I want you to follow with me. I want you to understand this. Skepticism seeks a sign where faith follows evidence. Skepticism seeks a sign where faith follows evidence. And so as we look at the scripture, as we look at everything that Jesus had done, was there evidence for the claims that Jesus was making? That he was the Messiah, that he was the son of God, which is actually going to be confirmed at the end of chapter 16, be here next week, because that's like, this is the kind of low passage. The end of this chapter is a big high passage. It's awesome. Okay. But as we look at this, we see that these Pharisees and these Sadducees, there is not faith within them. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus had already kind of addressed this. But what we see is the skepticism within them says, Jesus, show us a sign. Jesus, show us a sign. Jesus, show us a sign. And to their credit, if I have to give them a little, for a long time, the prophets of Israel would be presented with a, a sign. They would take a sign and there would be something that would take place and that would validate the messengers. And so the people of God that were speaking the word of God, there wasn't a whole uh, continuous scripture like we have today, but they would come and there would be a sign that would accompany their message. And so they would look and they would look for a sign. And when they saw that sign, they would say, this person is from God. We must follow after them. But now Jesus is coming and Jesus says, listen, there has been evidence that's been laid down from the prophets, from the law, from all of these things that I am here to fulfill and you're still coming to me asking for a sign? You see, skepticism, skepticism, it's kind of like uh, drinking salt water. A skeptic wants to come and wants to say, show me a sign, show me a sign, show me a sign, show me a sign. And the fact is that even when those signs are given, that skepticism doesn't suddenly change and become belief. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, listen, I, I came and uh, I played a happy song for you and you didn't dance. John came, John the Baptist, and he came and he played a funeral dirge and you didn't mourn. He's saying, you guys don't want to do what you're being called to do. And so that skepticism says, show me a sign and I'll believe, show me a sign and I'll believe, show me a sign and I'll believe. But no sign is ever good enough for the skeptic. There's never a sign that comes that actually pushes them to believe. And so we see that these individuals, they're coming to Jesus and they said, Jesus, just show us a sign. Jesus, just show us a sign. Jesus, just show us a sign. 
But what he finally does say is he says, I'll give you a sign. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You want to see something? I'll give you something. But the only one I'm going to show you is this, the sign of Jonah, the sign of Jonah. And so this is an interesting statement here that he makes. Uh, if you remember Jonah, short book of the Old Testament, but pretty familiar story. Um, in fact, if I were to say Jonah and the, you would finish with? There's always one. There's always one. Jonah and the aquatic thing, okay? Um, so there's always, see, what happens is Jonah was taken into the boat, and Jonah was uh, eventually was running from God, and they threw him overboard, and he was swallowed, and, and then he was spat up onto dry land. And so we saw all these things are taking place. All these things are kind of happening. And what's the sign of Jonah? Well, three days, three nights in the belly of this whale, this great fish. Uh, this three days and three nights. Okay? And so Jesus comes and Jesus says, hey, listen, I'll give you a sign. Let's give you the sign of Jonah. Now, there, I believe there are two things that this specifically means. Number one, um, what was Jonah's sign to the Ninevites? Did Jonah show up with the Ninevites, those people that he was sent to by God, and just start doing miracles and start healing and start doing anything like that? Was that the sign of Jonah? No. And the sign of Jonah, the man and the sign were one and the same. And so that's what Jesus, I believe, is saying in Christ. He's saying, who I am is the sign. But not only that, we see that Jonah himself descended into uh, the belly of this fish, down into the sea, down into the earth. And Jesus, we see that he's beginning to speak and beginning to prophesy of the things that are coming for him. The end of chapter 16 is going to clarify this. But he's beginning to speak of the stuff that's coming down the pike in his life. You see, he understands whether the disciples do or not that in just a little while, he's going to be taken, he's going to be crucified, he's going to die, and he's going to be buried. But just like Jonah didn't stay in the belly and in the sea, Jesus didn't stay in the grave. But he rose again, and he's still alive today. So he says, you want to see a sign? I'm going to show you a sign. And we understand that Jesus is both the miracle and the message. There is not a distinction between these two in Christ. There is not a Jesus did this sign, so therefore he is Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection is the sign that you and I and that humankind was waiting for. He is the fulfillment of all of these things. So Jesus is both the miracle and the message. So immediately after this interaction, watch verse number five, what happens here? When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so he gives this kind of uh, a cryptic warning. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves saying, we brought no bread. And so, okay, so follow what's happening here. They're crossing over, they're traveling, um, and they don't have any bread. And Jesus says, hey, watch out for the leaven. Watch out for the, the, the bread of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples say, oh, no, he knows that we didn't bring any bread. He's telling us not to take bread from those guys. 
they offer us any bread, we got to say no, no matter how hungry we are. And so the disciples are trying to process this. But they're trying to process it through a carnal lens. And so what happens? Jesus, uh, Jesus understands they're speaking in their confusion. And so he answers it. He said, oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 or how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? And so what all is taking place here? Um, Jesus gives this cryptic warning about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, and as he's speaking, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so what is, what is leaven? As we understand this, um, leaven is, it's a, it's a yeast. Um, it's an it's a agent used in baking that causes the bread to rise. And so it's a very small amount that's actually needed to make the dough rise. And in fact, if you were to take two uh, pieces of dough, add leaven or yeast to one of them and mix it together well, then at the beginning, those two would look identical, wouldn't they? I wouldn't be able to do this with two of them and say, pick the one that has the yeast. And at the beginning, you would look and you would say they look the same. They're indiscernible. But give it some time, and what begins to happen in the dough that has been leavened, where the yeast has been added, that dough begins to, begins to rise. It begins to change. It begins to manifest itself. And so even now, as Jesus is speaking of the, scri- of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he's saying, beware of this leaven. And in Jewish culture, in Jewish culture, leaven was associated with sin. It was associated with sin, oftentimes. That's why during the times there was a feast of unleavened bread. It wasn't that they were not allowed to eat anything um, with leaven or with yeast in it, but there were certain times of the year when the unleavened bread was to be used. It was a ceremonial bread, one representing the sanctity and the sanctification, the holiness of God and the set-apartness of the people. And so here he says, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they're still thinking, oh man, I guess we can't take bread from them. If we're hungry, he doesn't want us going and asking them for food. And so they think that he is condemning them and that he's getting onto them, scolding them for not bringing any bread. Um, What just happened, like within a span of months that these men witnessed? Jesus reminds him, he says, hey, listen, um, don't you remember that time where there was a crowd of 5,000 people and there were like five loaves of bread? Do you remember, does that like ring any bells for you? And the disciples, I just imagine they're like, oh, yeah, that did happen, huh? And then he says, hey, don't you remember we had seven loaves and there were about 4,000 people and what happened then? I'll give you a hint, it's the same thing that happened before. In both times, everyone was fed, and not only were they fed, but baskets were left over. And so Jesus is looking at him, and he's just like, why on earth would I be talking about you forgetting bread? Why in the world would I be upset about that? Why would I care that you didn't bring bread? Can't I just make bread or produce bread or multiply bread? Haven't you been paying attention? And yet the disciples think that he is so preoccupied with their physical well-being that they're just missing the 
point. But instead, what is he actually speaking of? Watch in verse number 11. How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He repeats himself again. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so this is a really interesting statement. In fact, um, this account is recorded in a couple of different Gospels. Matthew is the only one that actually goes into an explanation of what Jesus is speaking of when he says they understood that he was speaking of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so Matthew gives us a little bit more information. But you know what's interesting still is that he doesn't tell us what teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees he's actually, Jesus is actually critiquing. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, beware how the Pharisees and the Sadducees teach this specific thing. And in fact, um, remember what we talked about just a minute ago with the Pharisees and Sadducees? Um, They were super closely aligned in their theology, right? No. No. These guys are opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to their theological interpretations. These guys were not hanging out all the time. Okay. Um, They were together when they had to be, and that was about it. And so what we find here is we see that Jesus says, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so if their doctrines aren't aligned, what is it about their teaching that actually is in common? And here's what I want you to understand. They manipulated the law to fit their purposes. They misled people under a guise of godliness. They said, look how we behave. We are godly. We study the scriptures, even though we disagree on fundamental things. But, and they come together and they say, we are manipulating, whether they wanted to acknowledge it or not, the scriptures to fit their purposes. And so as they take the scriptures and they begin to twist, they come in and they say to Jesus, hey, listen, show us a sign, because obviously we need a sign if we're going to believe the things that you're saying. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'll give you a sign. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. I'll give you that sign. You're going to see a sign someday. And what do we know happened? As Jesus was crucified, he was dead, he was buried, and then he rose again and he showed himself to his disciples. He showed himself to, at a time, a crowd of over 500 saw this resurrected Jesus. He demonstrated these things to them. But even as we look at these understandings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, I think it's very important that as we open the scripture, we must know what the Bible says, not merely what we think the Bible says. Where did the Pharisees and the Sadducees get themselves into trouble with their teachings? They both started with the scripture. In fact, they had the same scripture. But what happened over time? They began to take the scripture and set it off on the side. They began to take the word of God and begin to assume that their traditions were equal to the actual teachings of the Bible. And so over time, these teachings and their understandings had evolved and changed to the point that they were no longer biblical at all. And so as we open up the scripture, we must be careful that as we go to it, that we are understanding what the Bible says, not what we think it says, and especially not what we want it to say. 
Because sometimes when we open up the Bible, it's easy for us to, um, uh, last on Wednesday, we were talking and we opened up the scriptures and we went to um, the book of Job chapter number eight. And there's a place in that passage that the Bible says that those who follow after God will prosper. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what that verse says. And so the fact is, we open up the scripture and we say, oh, this is what the Bible teaches. Well, we have to understand that that whole chapter is about a man who's about to be condemned for speaking falsely about God. And so we have to say, listen, that's not what the Bible actually is teaching. It's saying this is error, and it's stating this error very clearly. But when we grab the scriptures, if we want to twist and we want to change and we want to remove the context of the word of God... It's possible to make it say whatever we want it to say. And that's where the Pharisees and the Sadducees had entered in. And they had manipulated the scriptures. And they had taken these words of God and transformed them into something that they were not meant to be. So then how do we know the difference? How do we know the difference? Can I tell you this, church? Um, We study the Bible. We study the Bible. Jesus' prayer in the book of John, chapter number 17, for his disciples is this. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. In chapter 8 of the book of John, Jesus would speak and he would say this verse. It's very well known. He would say, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. What does the truth free us from? Well, it frees us from deception. It frees us from lies. It frees us from falsehood. It frees us from the things that would trap us and take us under. And so as Jesus is speaking of these Pharisees and these Sadducees, these are people that had twisted and manipulated the law and the scriptures. And he's saying, listen, go to the law and the scripture. Uh, Other place, Jesus would say, you guys search the law and search the scripture. You think you have eternal life here. Um, He says, "You're you're missing the point. You think in them you have eternal life? No, go to the word and actually understand what it means. And here's a one way that I've heard it said that I just, it's stuck with me ever since the first time I heard it. Get in the word until the word gets into you. Get in the word until the word gets into you. You want to know how to become more like Christ? You want to know how to become a godly husband, a godly wife, a godly member of a culture or a church or a community? Get in the word. Get in the word. If you're not in the word, listen, the enemy will chew you up and he will spit you out. The enemy will, he will deceive you. He will take you every which way because the fact is, is that the word is the place whereby you and I are sanctified. The Proverbs author writes, he says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That doesn't mean that it's a spotlight shining every step that we're ever going to take. But you know what it does mean? It does mean that the next step in front of us is illuminated. And that he helps us to be able to take the next step that we need to take. He gives us that wisdom and that understanding. And so as we're seeking to avoid the error of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, it's important that we go to the foundation that doesn't change. That we open up the word of God and that we understand what the word of God is actually communicating to us. It can be easy for us oftentimes to think that we have obtained spiritual maturity. It could be easy for us to become comfortable in our faith, to think, listen, I'm a good person. I, I go to church. I dust off my Bible every once in a while. I even pray before I eat at restaurants. 
It's easy for us sometimes to plug in and say, look, I've gotten there. I've reached spiritual maturity. And if we can be honest, I think a lot of us, um, when it comes to this topic, I think a lot of us take ourselves too seriously. Um, Jacob, I love you, buddy. Um, I was cracking up. I, <laughs> at the beginning of the service, I saw Carolyn, I saw your face. As soon as Jacob started strumming, I saw Carolyn's face. She goes, you could hear, you could hear the difference uh, between the keys and Jacob adjust the capo on his guitar. Listen, those things happen, right? Uh, man, how many of you get, how many of you have done something dumb, let's say in the last month? How many of you guys have done something dumb in the last week? How many of you guys have done something dumb today? How many of you guys are doing something dumb right now? <laughs> um, listen, we've been there. We walk through this. The purpose of our spiritual growth is not so we can pat ourselves on the back and be like, look how spiritual I have become. Pharisees and Sadducees, that's where they were. They come in and they say, look, I've obtained this. I am this. Therefore, but we look, we contrast them with the Apostle Paul. You know what the Apostle Paul says as he's writing? One of his later writings, in fact. Um, the Apostle Paul writes and he says, I'm the chief of sinners. He doesn't say, like, look at me. Oh, my man, I'm this great apostle. Early on he does. Oh, I'm this great apostle. But as his writings kind of mature, what does he do? He looks out and he says, man, I'm the chief of sinners. He writes in the book of Romans, all the things that I want to do, I don't do. And all the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing them. Okay. But the fact is, is that all of us are called to growth in our spiritual maturity. All of us are called to continue to grow. And if I can tell you this, um, if I can just say this as clearly as I can, if you're still breathing, your growth in Christ is not finished. Okay. If you're in this room and you are breathing, hopefully that's all of you. If not, um, Mark, I'll flag you down, buddy. All right. Hopefully all of us in here, there's still breath in our lungs. And you know what that means? That means your spiritual growth is not finished. You haven't gotten there yet. You have not achieved. You have not arrived. And you know what? Tomorrow you're going to get up and probably do something dumb again. Okay. Because we're still sinful. We're still sinners. And God is still working in us. And he hasn't forgotten you just because you've failed and just because you've walked aside. But the fact is, is that we're all still on this journey of our Christian growth. And what we see is that these scribes and these Pharisees, they're still looking for a sign, but that sign's already been given. That sign was already there. It was already present. And so today we must receive the same warning that Jesus gave to our spiritual ancestors. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know, these Pharisees and Sadducees, um, these were savvy guys. These were leaders in Israel. They were intelligent. They were educated. Uh, these weren't some backwoods collection of individuals. These were people that had their acts together. But at the end of the day, what did these things produce? These scribes and these Pharisees, they were without fruit. They believed that the change that they were trying to get could be manufactured from the outside and work its way in, that the law and the regulation and the traditions were enough to manufacture a change within their lives. But I want you to understand this. True change begins with the gospel. True change begins with the gospel. You see, true change doesn't just happen because you and I desire change to happen. True change happens because the gospel of Jesus Christ takes root in our lives. 
The fact is, is that you and I, we could spend the rest of our lives trying to be better and do better and do more. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find that you're going to fail over and over and over and over again. True change, true fruit being produced in the life of a believer begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It starts with, I am not enough and I could never be enough. It starts with, I am a sinner. God, I've let you down. I've disappointed you. I have wronged you time and time and time again. But here's what the gospel is. The gospel looks and says, hey, your heart, it's wicked. It's sin-filled. But Jesus is righteous. Jesus is good, and he's always good. Jesus, there's no sin in him. There's no deceit in him. There's no any of this in him. And here's what the gospel does. The gospel says, Jesus is in my place. He became sin, the Bible teaches us, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, as the enemy comes to us and the enemy pulls us down and the enemy uh, convinces us and works within our flesh that wants to go against God and push against God and sin against God. See, Jesus came and he was righteous when you could never be. He was righteous when I could never be. And so today, as we look at the 11 of the scribes and Pharisees, they attempted to be religious on their own. They attempted to get to God out of their own works and their own understanding and their own righteousness. But the Bible teaches us very clearly that there is no righteousness that comes from inside of me. There is no righteousness that comes from inside of you. The only righteousness that you and I have has been given to us by Jesus Christ. And in that same righteousness that we can believe and we can have salvation, he grows us and he matures us and he sanctifies us and sets us apart for his purposes.